Destiny City. Destiny City. Destiny City. Destiny City. Destiny City Church, a community of believers committed to helping others find and fulfill their God-given destiny. God became a man. Now that that is just mind-boggling to me that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, Jesus himself, who was there with the Father in the beginning, who was the Father, who was with God, is God, always will be God. And how he stepped out of his deity, how he stepped out of his rightful place in glory, came down to earth, humbled himself, became a child in a manger, lived a sinless life, died a sinner's death, shameful, placed on a cross, which was reserved for the most wicked of the wicked, and mostly only murderers, those of the most vile, corrupt sinners were the ones who were reserved for crucifixion. It was capital punishment in those days. Jesus was crucified, but not on his own stead, for hours. God became man and took our place. It just, it just is something that's so difficult for me to wrap my mind around that God would love us so much that he would do to go to such great lengths to prove himself to us. Philippians says this, Paul said, and, and he's reflecting about Jesus and he says in, in chapter 2 verse 5, he says, have this attitude in yourselves that was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. That word grasped there is the word harpagmos. It means to, to seize upon a robbery, to grasp something, to, to be eagerly coveted. He didn't, he didn't go after it. You know, I mean... If it was one of us and God said, I want you to come and sit at my right hand, we would like, all right, let's do this thing. You know, I'm going to give you equality with me and so you can rule and reign with me and you'll have, you'll have dominion over everything that there is. I mean, how many would pass that up? You know, uh, that's what Jesus was looking at. But yet he chose rather than that and he had the option Jesus wasn't forced out of heaven to come to earth. He had the option to stay, but he made the choice. He made the choice to come to earth. He made the choice to become a man, to suffer the pain, to endure the things that you and I have to endure so that he could relate to us and we could relate to him. And I think the, I think the Lord that in Hebrews chapter 4, it says, We have not an high priest who's touched not with the feeling of our infirmities, but we have one who's been tempted in all ways, even as we are, yet without sin. I mean, that's, that's the God that we're talking about. He's experienced every, every pain, every temptation, everything that you and I will ever have to endure. Jesus has already done it. He's got the T-shirt to prove it. And it's battered and it's bruised and it's beat up. They call it the Holy Shroud, I guess, but... It's proof of his love for us. That's what it is. 
And Jesus did it. He, he emptied himself in verse 7. He's, that word is kanao. It means to make empty. In other words, to abase, to neutralize. He, he falsified himself. He made himself of no effect, of no dignity or reputation by descending to an inferior condition. That's what Jesus did. Wow, he left it all behind and he became a man. Do you know why Jesus was baptized and received the Holy Spirit? You know why? Because you and I, if we're going to do the works of Jesus, we got to do the same thing he did. In Luke chapter 4, it talks about how Jesus was led into the wilderness and tempted by the devil. But, you know, he, it was immediately after he had been baptized that this happened. And what happened at his baptismal? Remember? He went into the river with John to be baptized. And as he was being baptized, the Holy Spirit descended in the form of a dove. It came upon him. And it says immediately. I like what Mark says, immediately. He's always using that word, immediately. So right after that, Jesus was led into the wilderness where he was tempted for 40 days and nights. It wasn't before he was received the power of the Holy Spirit that he went into the wilderness. It was after that he received the Holy Spirit that he went into the wilderness where he was tempted by the devil. Because if he had gone into the wilderness before he received the Holy Spirit, guess what? He wouldn't have made it. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, he was able to endure the temptations of the devil. He was able to resist, and the Holy Spirit was right there giving him the quickening words to speak to the enemy, to know how to defeat him with the words of his mouth. It is written, it is written, it is written. That's what the Holy Spirit does. It's amazing how that works, isn't it? Have you ever been in those situations where all of a sudden you've been confronted with something and you weren't prepared for it. I mean, most of life is like that, isn't it? I mean, you don't get a, you don't get a manual. You get a manual, of course, you got to read it, but it tells you how to prepare for life. And so, you know, you, you, you read the Scriptures, you read the Word of God, you prepare yourself for life so that when those moments come in, and it's like it says in Isaiah chapter 59, verse 20, it says, when the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will raise up a standard against him. And, and so when the enemy comes in like a flood, like he did toward Jesus, how did Jesus combat the enemy? Three words. It is written. It is written. You know, bow down and worship me. It is written. You shall love the Lord your God. You shall serve no other God but him. You know, he says, all the times he was tempted You know, turn these stones into red. You shall not tempt the Lord your God. He doesn't need need to prove himself. He's already done it. He knows who he is. And so every time the enemy would attempt to, to, to get Jesus to sin, the Holy Spirit was right there. And so Jesus, he divested himself and he emptied himself, but then he was filled with the Holy Spirit in order to become man and to live as a man. In order to overcome, he needed the power of the Holy Spirit. How did he do it? Well, first of all, he took the form of a bondservant. You know what a bondservant is? A bondservant is a servant who belongs, literally belongs to somebody else. He's been bought with a price. That's a bondservant. He's been bought with a price. He wasn't just captured. He was bought and paid for. 
And the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, in, in verse, uh, verse 20, he says, it says, you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your bodies, which is the Lord's. Wow. We've been bought with a price. An awful price that Jesus paid for us, but he emptied himself. He came with that purpose in mind to pay the price for you and me. He became a bond servant. That was his, that was his responsibility at that point. He wasn't acting on his own accord anymore. He was acting on the will of the Father. Remember when Jesus talked to the Father? Why do you think he was talking to God all the time? He was God, right? I mean, why would God talk to God? Because he had submitted himself to the Godhead. He had become one with the Father in perfect will and, and, and purpose. And so when Jesus would go into the garden and he would pray, he was asking, Father, Lord, what, what, what do I do now? What's the next step? And when he went into the Garden of Gethsemane, he knew what the next step was at that point. He knew that the next act that he was to do was to go to the cross. Now, up until that point, now Jesus would pray all night. I mean, and, and it didn't say a whole lot about his prayers and what he prayed. But at that point, it's very specific about what Jesus prayed about. He was praying about going to the cross because he knew what that entailed. He knew that he was going to the cross to die for the sins of the world. Now, that's a heavy responsibility. How many of y'all have been asked of God to go to the cross and die for the sins of the world? Anybody? None of us have. But that's what Jesus was asked to do. And he could have said, no, I just can't do it. But his passion for you and me and his love for us compelled him to go to the cross. And so when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was praying, and, 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 and he knew the Holy Spirit was telling him, this is what's going to take place. This is what's going to take place. He knew he could see the plan unfolding. And he's like, Father, isn't there another way we can do this? If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. This cup of your wrath that's being poured out upon me. If it's possible... But nonetheless, if there's no other way, let your will be done. Wow. Now, brother, I'm telling you, that's emptying yourself of your own purposes, isn't it? That is literally, literally becoming what the Bible says he became in 2 Corinthians 5, 5.21. For God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's what he became. He became sin. He became all of the ugliness. He became all the vileness. He became all the rebellion, all the murder, all the, all the sexual perversion. He became all of those things so that you and I could become righteous. So that when God looks at us, he doesn't see our sin. He sees the righteousness of his son. That, I don't know what that does for you. It's almost unconscionable. I, I remember watching this movie one time, The Princess Bride. Anybody ever watch that? And, and that one guy was always using that word, unconscionable. Inconceivable. He always talked with a lift. Inconceivable. 
And it's almost inconceivable <laughs> that God would do this, but he did. It's inconceivable that Jesus would do such a thing. It's unconscionable, actually. That he would take upon himself our sins. Now, I can only speak for myself. <laughs> I know what Jesus did for me. It's inconceivable that anybody could love me like that. Just, I mean, one of the greatest things that a man can ever enjoy in life is the love of a good woman. But the love of Jesus far surpasses that. There's nothing that can compare to what Jesus did when he became man, when he stepped out of heaven. It was all his plan I like what it says in John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. I remember your name that way, brother. John, <laughs> he came for a witness that he might bear witness of the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came that he might bear witness of the light. There was the true light which came into the world, which enlightens every man. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not receive him. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe on his, on his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And when Jesus went to the cross, he not only dwelt among us, but it says in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 27, that it is Christ in you, which is the hope of glory. He don't just dwell with us, he dwells in us. Jesus said he's going to the Father. He went to the Father. What was the reason for him going to the Father? He spelled it out to his disciples. He said, unless I go to the Father, then I can't send the Holy Spirit. But I will send the Spirit, and he shall be with you, and he shall be in you, and he shall reveal all things to you, and he shall guide you into all truth, and, and he shall empower you, and he'll show you the will of the Father. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing in this Christ in us, the hope of glory. The word Christ is the word Christos, capital C. Everybody say capital C. It's not like Christos Family Restaurant, a Christos. It's Christos, and it means anointed. Christ in you is the anointing. You have the anointing of God inside of you. You have Christ in you. You are anointed. And when Jesus said, he said, you know, in, in, in Luke chapter 4, I, I shared it with you last week, how that, you know, after he had been led into the wilderness and tempted of the devil, he comes back in the power of the Spirit and he goes into the synagogue and, and they're in there and they're reading the scrolls and he walks over and he grabs the scroll of Isaiah and he opens it up and he begins to read about himself. 
And he begins to tell them who he was. And then when he got through, he rolled it up and he said, this day the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And some of them looked at him like he was a nut. They didn't receive what he said. They didn't understand what he was talking about. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me and he has anointed me to preach the good news. To, to unloose them that are bound, to set at liberty them that are bruised, and, and, and to proclaim the liberty the, of the year, that can proclaim the day of the Lord. You know, he, he shared all these things that God had, had, had anointed him to do. And, and that same anointing that was in Jesus is in us. So what has he called us to do? It is Christ in you, which is the hope, gives you the ability to show forth the glory, the doxa, the, the splendor of Jesus. Without that hope inside of us, we can't do anything. But knowing that he is inside of us empowers us. That, that anointing gives us the ability to do what he's called us to do. Well, that's, that's free. That wasn't in my notes, so you can. The Father chose to illustrate his love for us in a tangible way. He could have, he could have just, you know, deposited money into our bank account. And for some folks, you know, that would have been quite significant. Now I can go to the French Riviera whenever I want to, or, you know, I can do whatever I want because I got money. But money is not everything. Matter of fact, it's hardly anything. It only buys things that we want. And once we use them up, then they're gone, right? They're no, they don't have any eternal value, but he came to give us something, something much greater than that. He, 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 he lavished something on us, and he, he chose to show us his love in a tangible way. And, and, and what could have he done that he didn't do to reveal his love for us? Wow. He could have caused our lives to be such that we would never have to endure any pain or suffering or anything else. And he has done that. But only we got to suffer with him now to enjoy the benefits that he has for us later. See, there's a day coming, there's a time coming when we won't suffer any. We won't have any want. All of our desires will be totally fulfilled through him. As a matter of fact, all of my desires are fulfilled through him anyway. It's all about Jesus. There is nothing else. That's life. I remember reading a story one time about Mother Teresa, for those of you who know who Mother Teresa was, if there ever was a, a true born-again Catholic saint of God, she was it. I mean, she was the epitome of someone who gave her life for others. And she gave her life for the children of Calcutta and India, and everything that she had, she poured into those kids as unto the Lord. She loved Jesus with a passion. And one time there was a reporter interviewing her and was asking her all these questions and everything the reporter asked, she would say, Jesus this, and she would say, Jesus that, and she would say, Jesus this. Finally, the reporter got tired of her seemingly patented responses. And she said to Mother Teresa, she says, can't you say anything without talking about Jesus? And she says, oh, my dear. But Jesus is all there is. There is nothing else to talk about. And that's the way she lived her life. 
Even when she, she won the, the, uh, the Nobel Peace Prize and received a million dollars for it, and they asked her the question, what are you going to do with a million dollars? She says, I'm going to bless more orphans. I'm going to feed them and clothe them. And that's what she did. A million dollars can go a long way in India. And that's what she did. She literally gave her life. But to her, to live is Christ. To die is gain. She understood it. She got it. You know, and, and we got to get it. We got to understand that, that what God has done and how he has showed us his love in such a tangible way has meant for us that we can be born again, that we will never, ever taste death, which is separation from God. Oh, our bodies, they'll pass away. All this is is a house. I am a spirit. I have a soul, which is my mind, will, and emotions, and I live in a body. But when my spirit leaves, my soul lives with it. So all that you got left behind is an old carcass, a soma, which you can do whatever you want to when the spirit's gone out of it. It doesn't matter. I, I jokingly told my wife, you know, I said, when I pass away, I love, I love the Outer Banks so much. And we lived in Hatteras Island for several years. I became really good friends with the folks down at the pier. I was the only guy in town who could walk up on the pier with my fishing gear and just pass right on through without showing a pass or anything. I, mean, I had total access to the pier anytime I wanted because, you know, they all knew me. I was a village preacher. And so uh, I had a little corner on the pier. They call it Preacher's Corner. My wife knows about it because one day she tried to get me to leave, and I wouldn't until I filled up my cooler, and it was had fishtails hanging out all over the place. I mean, it was, it was fun. But I told, my, I told my darling, I said, you know what, if, if I should pass away before you do, if the Lord should take me home, here's what I want you to do. I want you to, to, to take me to the funeral home and have them to embalm me sitting up with this huge smile on my face. And I want you to carry me out to Avon and set me in a nice lawn chair on the pier. Take my favorite fishing rod, bait it up, have somebody throw it out for you. Just out straight out from Preacher's Corner there on the pier where all the big sea mullet lay. And just put the pole in my hands and just leave me there. And so if they get tired of looking at me after a while, they could just kick me off in the water, let the fish and the crabs eat me, and they'll be happy because I've eaten quite a few of them. So <laughs> that's what Jesus has done for us. Death isn't something that we have to dread because of what Jesus has done for us. This is just dress rehearsal. He emptied himself, came and lived to show us how to live, and he died to show us how to die because resurrection's on the other side. And as sure as he came out of the grave, we're coming out too. Death can't hold us there. It has no victory over us. Oh, grave, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? Sting of death is gone. We don't have to worry about it because of what Jesus has done. And, 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 and it was in the Father's plan. And the Apostle Paul tells us there's a lot more, too, about what Jesus has done for us. He said that while we were still helpless in Romans 5, 
At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, man, though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die. I want to tell you something. Before I came to Jesus, I don't know if anybody would have died for this old sorry rascal. I don't know of anybody. Maybe my mama would have been. She loved me that much. But I don't know of anybody else who would have been willing to lay down their life for me. But Jesus did. And when I got a hold of that, when, when God gave me a visual of that, it changed my life. That Jesus loved me so much that that's exactly what he did. For God so loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That changed my life because when I, when I got a vision of someone hanging on the cross and, and I saw that it was Jesus, but then I saw myself hanging there. And Jesus came and took my place. Hey, I understood then that that was the reason that Jesus came, and that's why he went to the cross, was for me. And, 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 and Paul says that, that though someone might die for a valiant person or, or somebody that they deem worthy of dying for, he said, but God demonstrates his love toward us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's what he did. That's the cool thing. And, and the Apostle Paul uses Jesus' own example of giving of himself to encourage the church at Corinth in the area of giving themselves. And he says God loves a cheerful giver, but before that in, in chapter 5, and it goes into verse 6, and it talks has this discourse about giving. It talks about how Jesus gave himself, and Paul says that, that for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich for your sakes, yet for your sakes he became poor, that through you his poverty, that through you his poverty, through his poverty, you might become rich. You through his poverty might become rich. So he gave it all so you could have it all. He gave it all so you could have it all. Have all that you have need of. That's what Jesus did. He made provisions for you by giving of himself. That's pretty cool, isn't it? I mean, he, he paid the debt that we didn't know. We owed a debt we couldn't pay and see how that works out. Jesus did it. And, and Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 13 through 17, he says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in inapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And then he says, instruct those who are rich in this world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who does what? Who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. You know, there's something about this relationship with Jesus. I don't just endure it. You know, I have to endure when I'm being tempted. But I enjoy my relationship with Jesus. If you don't, shame on you. You know, I, I remember being a little boy growing up, and we had an older gentleman in our church that would always stand up when they have testimony time. Would have testimony, he'd jump to his feet, and he would have this to say. I want to thank God. I'm still saved, sanctified, filled with the Holy Ghost, and on my way to heaven. Y'all pray for me real hard, and I'll make it through to the end. Amen. <laughs> and he was sitting down. And it just made me want to run to the altar. It really made me want to run to the back door. I think, what a miserable guy. 
That's all his life with Jesus has been about. It's just making it through to the bitter end. Amen. I know the Bible tells us that he that endureth to the end shall the same shall be saved. I know that there's this thing about endurance. And, and there are times in our life when it, when it literally becomes an endurance contest because this relationship with Jesus and this race we're in isn't a sprint. It, it, it is a marathon. It's a, it's a long distance. We're in it for the distance. And I understand that. And there are times when, when you really have to suffer. I mean, there are times when things don't go your way. And, and, and believe me, we suffered our share of those too. But even in the middle of that, Having the presence of God enables me to have the joy of the Lord, which is my strength. The Apostle Paul experienced those things. I mean, he was, he was shipwrecked. He was thrown in jail and everything else. And I love the story in Acts where he's in the, in the Philippian jail and, and, and the jail in Philippi. And he and Silas, and they've been beaten and put in stocks. And then they're there, you know, with their hands and their feet bound. And, and it's about midnight. And, and I'm sure they probably bled a lot and hurt a lot and everything else. And kind of looked at each other and I imagine Paul says, Silas, you remember that song we were singing the other day about the joy of the Lord is my strength. <laughs> and they start singing and they start sharing these, these, these hymns and, and they just start just coming to them. And the next thing you know, all the other prisoners are starting to listen to them and everything. And, and then all of a sudden there's this, this shaking and it sounds, it's almost like an earthquake and all their, their stocks and their bonds, they fall off and everything. And, and so the, you know, the, the cell doors open and all the prisoners come walking out. And it says that, that they started to walk out and the jailer, you know, he takes his sword and starts to kill himself. And Paul says, no, don't, don't do that. Don't do that. He says, what shall I, I do? Because he knew that if the prisoners left, that it was curtains for him. They, they, he knew that. And, and Paul says, you know, that, that this is of the Lord. And he says that if you'll just call on the name of the Lord, you shall be saved and your whole household. And he did. And that jailer took Paul and Silas to his house and he washed them and took care of the wounds and stuff. And, and God just did a powerful thing. Because they understood what Jesus meant, what he had done. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 says, God, after he had spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in the many portions and in many ways, in the last days, he has spoken to us in his, his son, in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. When Jesus had finished his work here, that's what he did. He went back to his deity, went back to his place in heaven. And we fall down and we worship him. God is an awesome God. He became man. He did that. And still, he's, he's able to hold the entire universe in place. And that's more than I can comprehend. All the time he was man, he was still holding the worlds and the universe into place. That's the God that we serve. A God that is, 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 is powerful enough to do all of this and yet interested enough in you 
that he knows the most minute detail of what you're going through. And as a matter of fact, just in case you want to know, he's experienced it. And so you, you know because of what he's done, you have a confidence that you can approach his throne. And, and when you do, you know you're going to receive mercy and grace to help you in your time of need. Because he's already walked through everything that you and I could ever think about enduring. He's already done it. Just one little passage of scripture. And I'm going to close. Martin Luther said, the mystery of the humanity of Christ is that he sunk himself into our flesh. And that's a mystery that's beyond all human understanding. You can't really grasp the total concept of it. It's something that God did. And if it's something that you and I could, could wrap our minds around, then it wouldn't be a God thing, would it? But he's so much greater. And his grace is so much greater than all of our sin or anything else. And that's what he's done for us. And John says it in 1 John 3, verses 1 through 9. And and actually, I shared part of this scripture with you last week. He says, see how very much our Father loves us, for he calls us his children, and that's what we are. But the people who belong to this world don't recognize that we are God's children because they don't know him. Dear friends, we are already God's children, but he has not shown us what we shall be be like when Christ appears. But we do know... That we will be like him, for we shall see him as he really is. And all who have this eager expectation or this hope inside of them will keep themselves pure, just as he is pure. Everyone who sins is breaking God's law, for all all sin is contrary to the law of God. And you know that Jesus came to take away our sins, and and there is no sin in him. Anyone who continues to live in him will not sin. And I put this in parentheses. This is... Uh, my own notes, it's no longer natural for him to sin. I don't know about you, but as a child of God, if I start to do something that's contrary to what God wants me to do, my spiritual Geiger counter goes off. The conviction power of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit begins to deal with me because it's against my nature. Why? Because I've been born again of the Spirit of the Father. My DNA is his DNA, which is holiness. God calls me to be holy because that's what we are. He said, be holy as I am holy for holiness without no man shall see God. It doesn't mean that we're absolutely perfect. What that means is we're set apart by God. We're called his own. We're his children. He says, dear children, don't let anyone deceive you about this. When people do do what is right, it shows that they are righteous, even as Christ is righteous. But when people keep on sinning as a practice, it shows that they belong to the devil who has been sinning from the beginning. But the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. Those who have been born into God's family do not make practice of sinning because God's life is in them. So they can't keep on sinning because they are children of God. Romans 8.35 says, can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean that he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As the scriptures say, for your sake we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. 
And Paul says it with a resounding no. Despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ Jesus who loved us. God's in touch with our greatest and most intimate needs. He understands what we need even better than we do. That's why he came into the world. That's why God became man. You see, if our greatest need is information, God would have sent us educators. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an, an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need was forgiveness. So God sent us a Savior. You've been listening to Destiny City Church, a community of believers committed to helping others find and fulfill their God-given destiny. For more information, visit us online at destinycity.org.